0: So as Dan said, this talk um, is all about strongly encouraging people to be committed to a church family uh, for the long term. And I think we put this together a couple of years ago at MCC, took part over uh, a series. And for each one that I did, um, I'd always start off with something like this. Um, I have hope that I've made it abundantly clear that this isn't some kind of recruitment drive. Um, so the big point is to eventually belong to a church uh, it doesn't have to be our church, is what I'd say every week. But when I sent Dan my draft of this talk for some feedback, he wrote a note, and I'll just read it out here verbatim. Um, Matt, I insist that at this stage you ask everyone to belong to my church. Um, <laughs> I'm saving up for personalised number plates that say, senior pastor? I don't know, that, I don't know, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah so, so, yeah. So there's a cause, a worthy cause. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, please turn with me. I'm just going to read a section from Romans chapter 6. So this is Romans chapter 6, verses 16 to 23. And I'll be referring back to this a little bit later on in the talk. And this is from the Message translation. And it goes like this. So, since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourselves to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. All your lives, you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you've started listening to a new master, one who commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time, the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became, and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness? As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living, or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. So, today, I want to look at a dearly held and cherished notion that often gets in the way of us moving from the me, the individual, to the we, the church community. And this isn't a bad thing, bony stretch. I just think it's a pretty easily abused thing. It's something that I think almost holds sacred worth, that if you quizzed your non-Christian friends and family about, I reckon this would make their top five values. It's something that I still hold as really important, though it probably doesn't enamor me quite as much as it did when I was a younger man. And here it is, the almost golden calf in our first world. Freedom, as maybe best exemplified by Marlon Brando from The Wild One. I'm sure if anyone actually still remembers Marlon Brando from The Wild One. I still can't believe the guys used to dress like that. It's not so cool anymore, you don't see it. Maybe the village people ruined it. I don't know, but, but Marlon Brando, he was like the embodiment of that cool, unrestrained individual. Now as a disclaimer, when I use the term freedom, I'm not referring to freedom in the political or human rights sense. So I'm not going to be looking at the right to free assembly or to vote, anything like that. Those basic and fundamental civil liberties that are enshrined by law are not what I'm interested in today. In this talk, I'll be looking at freedom in our private worlds. So the everyday freedom we have around how do we spend our time? our money, our attention. I guess you could call this personal autonomy. And the talk is gonna be kind of broken down into three parts, so here's the roadmap. I'll be looking at what freedom was, why it's not what it's cracked up to be, at least anymore, and how moving from me to we can bring out the best in freedom and help deal with its pitfalls. So the freedom that I'm talking about has its roots in the enlightenment and came about as a justified corrective against the coercive and often arbitrary power that the monarchs and sometimes church wielded over society. So this is the kind of thing that the American Declaration of Independence was supposed to combat. And since then, there's been two world wars and the most extreme examples of totalitarian societies in history. For example, Stalinist Russia and Mao's China. So people, understandably, become more and more sceptical of the wisdom and the motives and the intentions of traditional authorities. So to be free has often meant being suspicious of customs, traditions, parents, teachers, religious institutions, and instead finding out the truth for yourself. So freedom, this kind of freedom, it was the preferred contrast to the stifling conformity that seemed to typify 50s America and the risk of ending up looking like Greg Brady instead of James Dean. They are often the options. So here are a couple of choice examples of this version of freedom that some famous American novelists and philosophers put together. So Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said, he wrote, society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. It's the individual versus society. Walt Whitman, the mystic and poet wrote, you shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor feed on the spectres in books. The implication being, you find out the truth yourself. And Norman Mailer, the American author wrote, "Um, to live authentically, to live authentically, one has to divorce oneself from society, to exist without roots set out on that uncharted territory journey into the rebellious imperatives of the self, the self. So autonomy, personal freedom, these became sacred and it usually involved rebelling without a cause or sticking to the man or fighting the power, whatever that looked like. So you had someone like James Dean, the original rebel without a cause, all the way through to Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy. So poets part of the, the, uh, the beat movement. And the irony of all of this is that these guys started off being true alternatives, true rebels, but of course it was images just like this that launched a 1,000 Levi's. These guys wore jeans before it was cool, and again, it really was kind of rebellious, and this got picked up and mass marketed. The face that sold a 1,000 Levi's. So if you fast forward to now, we've come a long way. So it doesn't really seem to me like there's so much of a risk of any stifling conform, uh, conformity courtesy of religion or outdated morals or, or um, traditions. There's this famous line in The Wild Ones, that Marlon Brando movie, where Marlon Brando's character, Johnny, he's asked this classic question, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And Brando famously answers, what do you got? And that's a really fair question now. Things have come such a long way there seems to be very few taboos left. Um, when I was young and growing up, the only people that had tattoos were usually sailors, or the Russian Mafia, or John Bon Jovi. And that was really about it. But now it's like everyone has got one. When I was working at a school as a school counsellor a couple of years ago, there was a kid in high school whose parents gave him permission, he was 16, like to get a tattoo. When I was young again, uh, the biggest risk of getting a tattoo was that your mum might find out. And now the biggest risk is that you turn up at the tattoo parlour and you run into your mum getting the same tattoo as you, like some Mandarin character that says, wild spirit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but still, Uh, But still, I still have this kind of strong, strange uh, residual impulse to be wary of anything that looks like conformity or anything that may violate my precious sense of authenticity, of being true to myself. And there's still this wary of commitment to a group kind of reflex that I find myself having. I'm wary of giving up some of my power and independence to some other authority. What if they abuse it? What if I fall into groupthink? What about if I get, God forbid, boxed in somewhere? So this is how another author has um, summed it up, a philosopher, American philosopher, Matthew Crawford. He wrote, it is part of our enlightenment heritage that we are taught to take an intransigent stance against the authority of other people. It's a latent default position that is almost built into us these days. So this very sacred sense of freedom can make it hard to move from the me to the we. And this just isn't a church issue but one affecting many voluntary organisations because it can really erode trust in and loyalty to a larger group that will have some degree of authority and influence over you. Now You could be forgiven for believing that we're freer than we've ever been, that we have more choice and autonomy than in any other time in history and that may well be the case in many important senses. But in another I'd suggest it's actually a terrible lie. So here's two fairly strong criticisms of this modern notion of freedom. So firstly, freedom now, for us, involves being largely at the mercy, I'd suggest, of an incredibly sophisticated advertising industry. So some critics have labelled it the choice architects. They have money, experience, science, and psychology all behind them. And they've become very adept at pitching at us in ways that builds this false confidence in our power and individuality. So you'll regularly get told that this thing will give you choice, freedom, options, deservingly so, as you're one of the most important and unique people in the world. But the choice, of course, is almost always based on market research. So you're going to end up watching and talking about the same TV shows as just about everyone else. Netflix must have about a billion options right now, but the one that I'll choose has been suggested by an algorithm that probably knows me better than myself. And regardless, if you slum it with the masses and end up at a drive-through under some golden arches on a Friday night, or maybe you think you're slightly sophisticated because you use the Uber Eats app, either way, you're still getting corralled to some degree, right? It's not like you're at home thumbing through the recipe book by yourself saying, I'm going to choose this and go to the hard work and buy all the ingredients and then cook it myself over a couple of hours. You're still consuming, not creating, and the many, the many consumer choices that we're free to make are from a stacked deck, so to pick, so to say, all under the guise of being unique individuals with creative freedom. So, um, <laughs> a real life example from my life: I, um, I somehow got roped into a, like a, um, a day's worth of like a market research workshopping uh, at Mona, and it was it was it was all about big paint, big paint industry, big paint and big oils. So I was there because I just done I, I just oiled my own deck. So I got some, so I got walked in, and we were all sat down at these tables. And next to every chump like me, there was someone from the industry. Fr- it turns out from the marketing and branding component of big oil and big paint, who was sat next to you. And the first question what, from them was like okay, okay, so Matt, like what are you doing here? Like what's your experience? So I preferenced the whole thing by saying, oh look look, you know I'm probably. I'm probably like fairly, pretty unique for you guys. So, um, you know, I grew up uh, and my dad wasn't really that kind of hands-on and tradie. He was like more of a knowledge worker. Uh, but I had lots of really practical, competent friends. And so they, they learned all these math schools and I'm like fairly inept practically. But now I want to rectify that. So I'm tertiary educated, but I'm saving money to buy power tools and decking oil and stuff like that. And I really want to learn. And you know, you guys probably don't hear that very often, right, and he goes, wow, you're our target audience. <laughs> and I thought, oh, right. Great. Here I was thinking I was some kind of snowflake and this guy tells me, no, 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 sorry buddy, you're exactly who we pitch everything to. I thought, oh man, talk about lose your delusion. So I wasn't nearly as special as I thought I was. Uh, I wasn't an individual, I was now part of a targeted group. And often my freedom doesn't seem to go much further than a PayPal account and high-speed broadband at home. So I'm free to be sold stuff 24-7 even when I'm at my most vulnerable, tired, bored and depressed. That's freedom. So we want to think of ourselves as free selves who have these authentic, novel, unique preferences and desires that we've independently come to and reached. And when we are met with this unending universe of lifestyle choices and options, we rationally, coolly take our pick. And that's exactly how choice architects want us to think about ourselves too. I'd suggest that in reality, a lone individual, a me, if you like, doesn't have much chance against a long-standing, sophisticated, billion-dollar industry. Now that may all sound a little bit bleak and extreme, but please, think about it, ponder it. Because that kind of freedom, if it's true, I think it can end up breeding dissatisfaction. What's the next thing? This old thing, it sucks. And then there's the envy it can also cause. I want the thing that they have and perhaps, even shallowness. The American comedian Louis C.K., I think back in 2016, had this great and famous skit, and I think it was entitled, Everything is Amazing and Nobody is Happy. So he gave the example of jumping on a plane, some transcontinental flight, and as they reached cruising attitude, the voice came on the PA, and for the first time ever, this airline was offering rapid high-speed internet on board, and people almost cheered. So everyone opened up their laptops or their iPads and got working, and then about ten minutes later it went down. And the guy next to Louis C. is going, what the wah, 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 and just went off his head at the stewardesses and everything. And Louis Serquet was like, ten minutes. Ten minutes like they've had this for the first time ever. Internet in the sky as you're flying through this like this this metal capsule. And the guy loses it and it's become a fundamental human right in the space of ten minutes. Everything is amazing and no one is happy. It's that kind of shallowness that can be bred. So that's the first issue with our current version of freedom. It's a bit of a smoke screen. It, it hides, or it can hide, a very shallow reality. And secondly, maybe, just maybe, we aren't actually built as humans to carry that kind of freedom. With this freedom from tradition, religion, doing it the way that your parents did, or the way that society told you, came great comes great responsibility. With with this kind of autonomy that we have now somehow comes a whole lot of accountability. So think about it, the freedom to choose who you're gonna be, to pick and peruse your preferences, this can become an absolute burden, especially in a world which is becoming more and more measurable and more and more connected. So again, it's been put like this by Matthew Crawford. He wrote, if there are no external constraints, what you make of yourself depends on your gumption and mental capacities. Are you a high performance person? In a culture of performance, the individual reads the stat the status and value of her soul in her worldly accomplishments. Like the Calvinist, she looks to her success in order to know: Am I one of the elect or am I damned? With radical responsibility comes the specter of inadequacy. So, for example, I get up in the morning and I walk to work, and my new smartwatch. Tells me that I've done 2,400 steps out of my required 10,000. So I log into Facebook and I get to work and notice that my last post didn't get as many likes as my friends, and that makes me worry a little bit. So I eat a donut. I then enter the donut into my calorie counter app uh, and curse my lack of self-control. And of course, my Garmin is connected via Garmin Connect to my other Garmin friends, who can also see my calorie counter because we also like we've got shared my fitness pal tracking apps as well. And I see that my calorie, my calorie count is higher than those guys. So now I'm really worried. All, and all this worry makes me less productive at work that day, which results in me not not getting all my most important tasks of the day ticked off my to-do list. So I start to worry that I'm, I'm not trying hard enough in my chosen profession, so I work late. That of course means that I miss the quiz night that all my other friends are going to. So I start to worry about my work-life balance being in sync. Maybe I need a, like a life coach. Tim's got a life coach, maybe I need a life coach. <laughs> So, (laughs) I worry, and I stress, and I don't get my 10,000 steps done. And you can see this is all like a little bit facetious, but just a little. The point is that a lot of us, and maybe more so the young, are feeling the pressure of having the freedom to define and then realize the good life. Defining and realizing the good life. No one's really ever had to do that before. It's been worked out for you in advance. And this is in a world that is rife with possibilities and comparisons. In that kind of world, how do you deal with the overwhelming number of options? And how do you deal with being the recipient of all those options, all that potential, and yet you fail? It's clearly your fault. Take some responsibility. And on top of that, how do you deal with the mundane, the everyday? Because that can't be part of the good life, right? Especially when everyone else seems to be having more fun than me, at least according to their social media feeds. And again, all that may sound a bit trite, but in reality, it could be more serious than we think. So the French sociologist, Gilles Lipovetsky, he writes, witness the rise of psychosomatic symptoms and obsessive compulsive behavior, depression, anxiety, and suicide attempts, not to mention the growing sense of inadequacy and self-deprecation. So get this, the more socially mobile the individual is, the more we witness signs of exhaustion and subjective breakdowns. The more freely and intensely people wish to live, the more we hear them saying how difficult life can be. So the culture tells me that I I was free to create a beautiful, extraordinary life. And all I did was live an average one and raise a family in the suburbs. Fail, as the kids say these days. Absolute fail. So there, there are the two reasons why I think our modern version of freedom and the, and the autonomy that comes with that can be unhelpful. We're not really as free as perhaps we think we are. And even if we were, most of us couldn't live very long without becoming undone by that version of freedom. But what on earth does any of this have to do with from me to we? Or even church? Quite a lot. I'd suggest. Firstly, it's worth being familiar with our cultural blind spots. And this idea of freedom, it may just be one of those. We may be more wary of churches and people than we suspect. And we may have that kind of built-in reflex to be a little reserved or cynical when people try to speak into our lives or have some voluntary authority over us. We suspect that perhaps they're trying to water us down and take our freedom. And at least knowing that some of the suspicion is built into the culture helps to distance it from church. It's not a church issue. It's probably not even a me issue so much. It's a cultural issue. And if I can identify that as such, it helps me deal with it. I'm actually forearmed. Secondly, looking at this idea of freedom and autonomy helps us see the truth from the lies. So we'd like to think that we're rational and discerning beings that we're the ones doing the playing as opposed to those being played. And our pride wants us to think that we're that one in a million who won't be unduly influenced by a billion dollar industry. But scripture reminds us just how easily we can dupe ourselves. So there's this great passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah 44. And in this context God is using Isaiah to address the Jewish people. The religious folk of the, of, the, uh, of the day. And this is in the context of, of um, idolatry. So Isaiah says, he, he being a symbolic Israelite, he first cuts down a cedar or maybe picks out a pine or an oak and lets it grow strong in the forest, nourished by the rain. Then it can serve a double purpose. Part he uses as firewood for keeping warm and baking bread. From the other part, he makes a god, a god shape, an idol, and prays before it. Doesn't it occur to them to say, half of this tree I used for firewood. I baked bread, I roasted meat and enjoyed a good meal. And now I've used the rest to make a repulsive no-god, an idol. Here I am praying to a stick of wood. The lover of emptiness, of nothing, is so out of touch with reality, so far gone, that he can't even look at what he is doing. Can't even look at the no-god, the idol, stick of wood in his hand and say, this is crazy. And these were the religious folk of the day. Maybe not so much unlike a lot of us now. We think, we, we think that, we, that we're different, right? We think that we're different. But maybe instead of being deluded that we bow down to an idol, we're deluded into thinking that we don't bow down to an idol when there's some chance we probably do. Scripture also reminds us that we have freedom or wrong. Of course people crack and break if they believe freedom means defining what this good life is for themselves and that they are solely responsible for realising it. That's not really freedom. That's more of a curse. We can't handle it. The passage that I read at the start from Romans 6 shows us instead what true freedom we have. So we had the freedom to respond to God pursuing us. And we had the freedom of becoming voluntary slaves, if you like, of his which will lead to holiness and eternal life. Or we have the freedom to remain slaves to sin, to selfishness, to self-obsession, to delusion, and that leads to death. it's interesting, hey, that there's freedom there, but it's not unlimited. It's freedom to choose who or what you're going to be a slave to, whose authority you're going to place yourself under. And so often we have this idea, even in communities of faith, that in relation to religion, we again, we're these cool, calm and rational individuals that calmly weigh up the evidence, nice and soberly. We do like a pros and cons list or table for believing in God. And then after we've finished our Excel spreadsheet, we calmly make a decision and we graciously reach out and accept God. We do him the favor, who's been waiting for us with bated breath. But here in Romans, the reality is different. Romans tells us that we're already enslaved to something. We need liberating. And it's not a case of us reaching out and accepting God so much as God has been actively pursuing us. And we can accept his offer and his means of emancipation from the old cruel master and voluntarily enter the service of the new. And this strikes me as so much more of a humbling kind of stance. If it helps, and if you're familiar with it, remember the nation of Israel in the Exodus story onwards. So they weren't free, they weren't in this position where they could go God shopping. They were enslaved to a cruel oppressor, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And God then delivers them with a mighty hand and takes them into the wilderness to serve him. They weren't serving themselves, but him. And the freedom they had was to choose to serve Egypt or God. Either way, they had to choose somebody to serve. They weren't free, they weren't free to free themselves. And lastly, in relation to church and moving from the me to the we, why not consider your church family here, Together Church, as some kind of sanctuary? Which you may do already but I mean in terms of a sanctuary from those architects of choice that are trying to manipulate us and the unhelpful consequences of modern freedom. So some ways that perhaps we can keep on doing this. You can look to each other to remind yourselves of the true story. If we, if you guys, if we remain a bunch of me's of of loosely affiliated individuals, we'll be steamrolled by the culture. It's too hard to resist it by ourselves. And if you look to the world for support, you'll end up negotiating life by its unhelpful standards. You risk being an anxious, worried, busy victim of freedom. The me needs the we to remind it of the truth. We were never free in that regard to begin with. We were under the mastery again of these old, unhelpful, sinful natures. Our fragile egos, our selfishness, our rebellion, and all that only ever leads to death and destruction. But Jesus, He set us free from that. He's the good Master. So we don't have the awful burden of creating a perfect life from scratch. Instead, we follow Him, our Lord and Master, and we follow Him into that good, holy, and eternal life. That's the truth. That's the real story, not the counterfake story. And if we don't keep on reminding each other of that, then who will? So it's great to do this on a Sunday afternoon. And it's even more potent via thick and deep relationships that you guys are no doubt forging as well. And church, the we, is also a great place to exercise the new freedom that we have in our relationship with Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, he writes extensively about freedom in his letter to the Romans that we've already read some from, as well as the churches in Galatia and Corinth. And to his Jewish contemporaries, Paul would have appeared radical so he didn't consider Sabbath, the Saturday, to be the holy, the way that they did. He ate food that was dedicated to pagan idols. That was unbelievable in the time. He was free from religion. He had real autonomy, thanks to Jesus. So he goes as far as to write in 1 Corinthians 10:29. he writes, For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Why should my freedom be judged by someone else's conscience? But then he answers his own question in the following verses. He writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So get this, this is the paradoxical point of freedom. To be so free that you can voluntarily lay down your freedom for the sake of others. To be so free that you can voluntarily, not coerced, not obligated, not pushed, not shoved, but voluntarily lay down your freedom for the sake of others. So Paul, he's no, he's no sheepish pushover. He knows how free he is thanks to Christ. But he's willing to lay all that down in a heartbeat for the sake of others and ultimately the glory of God. So for Paul, freedom isn't the end game, it's not the big deal. The big deal is the good of others and God's glory. That's the point of it all. Compared to that, freedom is shallow. And what does he base this on? The example of Christ, of Jesus who also voluntarily laid down his freedom and became a servant for the sake of his creation. So to conclude, if you're new to faith, I don't know where everyone's at here obviously, if you're just exploring this, I'd encourage you to keep on moving from the me to the we. And I know it's countercultural, and I know I can feel a bit unnerving. You may, like many of us, have had bad experiences getting too close to people whether this be via family, friends, churches or maybe some other voluntary organisation. Let me encourage you, give it another shot, but maybe just start small. Just start small. How small? As small as just turning up to this meeting every time it's on. Just showing up, just being another body in this room. This itself is a pretty big step. People at uh, at my church, at MCC, if they're new or they're a little nervous or they're a little uh, introverted or uncertain, they often feel bad because they want to contribute and give something, but they don't know how or they feel understandably cautious about it. And I try to point out that although it may not seem very much to them, it might not feel very much, they're being so encouraging to other people just by turning up, in our case, on a Sunday morning just by being there. They could be doing anything else with their time on a Sunday morning, but they choose to be there just by turning up. That's something. It's still risky. It still requires some sacrifice, but it's a worthy first step. So I'd encourage you, if that's where you are, keep on moving in that direction. But maybe you've been part of this community of faith for a while, or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, but you're still on the fence about becoming any more involved in the we. Maybe think about it like, like this um, as far as I know Dan isn't seeking to turn this into a cult <laughs> so this isn't about this isn't about groupthink it's not about trying to turn people into sheeple that's what that's that's certainly not what I'm uh, encouraging people towards there are some church leaders in, in the UK and they describe what I'm talking about in this model they say it's about moving from a hyper individualistic culture of independence complete independence to one of interdependence of informing and being informed by other people who you voluntarily enter into that relationship with. So it's not like a, like a, um, a uh, kind of traditional tribal culture where that kind of dependence is forced upon you, where you're dependent entirely upon others. Instead, in this model, the interdependent model, you, volu- you voluntarily take it on, and that's critical. Such an important distinction between having this forced upon you and voluntarily taking it on. I mean, think about it, hopefully I've convinced you that none of us are completely independent and autonomous. We're all influenced by someone, if not some people, if not some kind of multinational corporation, and to some degree that's part of being human, part of being social creatures. What I'm suggesting is that you consciously and intentionally um, choose who that group, who that group of influences is gonna be on you, and then you dive in and you commit to that. You pick your faith community. You say that you're gonna voluntarily, again, journey through life with them. You give each other the permission to shape and influence each other. Again, that's not being encroached upon, that's not being obligated, that's not being coerced, that is something that you voluntarily, intentionally, prayerfully sign up to. And you do that knowing that it's risky. It's still risky, right? Talk to anyone who's been involved in church circles for more than 10 years, they'll have at least one horror story. But it's an informed risk. It's almost an act of faith. It's how maybe God saves us from being people of the age, from being people of the age. And what I mean by that is that if it was just left to me, if I spent all my time, all my discretionary time just with my people who I picked through my preferences, I'd end up hanging out with a bunch of people that look just like Matt. And we would all be to some degree peers. And I would end up, I would live and die as a person of my age. Really no different. Because I would have surrounded myself with people just like me. When I join a faith community like my church, I rub shoulders with people who I never voluntarily, if I wasn't a follower of Christ, spend time with. They're too different, they come from different backgrounds, we don't have the same interests a lot of the time. We've got God and church in common. But it's like God has taken that small step of faith and he's shaped me, he's rubbed some of the edges off me via these people. Because these people, if they're older than me or younger than me, they aren't living under the same spirit of the age. So they can speak into my life from a completely different perspective that I, couldn't, that I can't bring to the party. And I never would have chosen them. God chose them to a degree for me, for turning me into the person that I think he wants me to be. And that's, um, that's interesting. Like there are some, some older guys, again, in my, in my congregation that we never would have connected or clicked or whatever if it hadn't been for church. And through them, I've learned in a spirit of, in, in, in my age, in my background, there's so much self-promotion, there's so much platforming, there's so much grandstanding, There's so much wanting to be remembered, and I have these older guys, and they are quiet, self-effacing, faithful, consistent, and they just get on with it. And man, I need them. But I wouldn't have picked them, but I need them. So, think about that, if it's uh, it's helpful, um, yeah, if it's helpful. Um, Thanks again for your time. What I'd like to do now is just take a couple of minutes, um, and I'll close this off in prayer. But think about, There's anything that's been useful? There's anything that God wants you to consider and implement based on this talk? And maybe again, if it's useful, just think about is there anything, is there something that's getting in the way? Is there some kind of objection, some probably understandable objection or fear or worry that's making you reticent about moving more from the me to the we? So I'll give you a couple of minutes of silence. You can stand up, you can sit, you can just extend your arms a little bit. Whatever you want to do, I'd encourage you to have some kind of posture of expectancy that God is going to somehow speak something to you now just in the next couple of minutes. Put something in your mind that he wants you to take notice of and then I'll conclude in prayer. Thanks.